Welcome to Indie Cider, where we go beyond the game and meet the developers behind today's indie hits. Hello and welcome to the Indie Cider Podcast. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. I haven't used this audio feed in about two years, but I thought this would be the best place to share the audio from my recent PAX East 2019 panel, The Return of Couch Play. This panel was held Saturday, March 30th, 2019 at PAX East in Boston, Massachusetts. I recruited five independent game developers to share with me their thoughts about offline multiplayer. The video of that panel is available on YouTube and at gamebits.tv slash paxcouch, but I thought for those of you who want just the audio... This podcast would be the perfect place to put it. So without further ado, here's the show. My college years were mostly spent playing GoldenEye on the N64. The Nintendo 64, four controller ports, instant party. You just leave your dorm room open, people wander in and out all night, and you play video games all night. And if it wasn't GoldenEye, then a year or two later, it was Smash Brothers, it was Mario Party, it was amazing. It was just gaming all the time with people getting to know them, getting to know them better, friends instantly. If you had told me back then that a few years later I'd be able to play with 99 people online, my mind would have exploded. I would have thought that'd be amazing. And it is. Fortnite, PUBG, Tetris 99, these are phenomenal games. But while it's added something, the ease of access with which you can meet people, or not meet people, but play against them, which is especially harder as an adult and you can't just leave your dorm room open, I feel like something else has been lost, that ability to have in-person camaraderie, this offline play that used to be a technological limitation and now is an opportunity. And I want to introduce you to some developers who are today making those offline opportunities in this online networked world. So, so going down the line, we have Tanya Short, the creative director of Kit Fox Games. Hi, Tanya. Hello. So you, our company, is working on some phenomenal games. I'm so looking forward to Boyfriend Dungeon, which, full disclosure, I backed on Kickstarter. Ah, thank you very much. Uh, but the game that you're probably going to be speaking most about today is Moon Hunters, which I have a brief trailer for. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, this was our Kickstarter trailer, actually, back from 2014. Um, so it might mention some uh, some features that didn't make it into our launch in 2016. <laughs> but it was a one-to-four-player cooperative mythology-building RPG, or as we later decided to dub it, a personality test RPG, in which you and your friends would make various choices together as you encounter random villagers and adventurers those choices would influence what kind of reputation you got, um, what kind of legend you became in the afterlife, basically. Um, so you're building up not only your, your character, but you're kind of joking around with your friends as well, because in, in dialogue you vote on what to do. And so you could kind of discuss with each other, like, no, you should kiss him, like, no, you should you should hit him, or whatever. Um, and so that was kind of the, the unique thing that, that Moonhunters brought to, to local co-op, I thought. And remind me what platforms that's on. Oh, uh, Steam, PS4, Switch, uh, Xbox One, yeah. And do they all offer online play as well? Uh, no, only PC and Mac, so desktop only. Okay. As so- online, so that all the rest are local co-op only. Cool, thank you. Uh, moving down the line, we have Christopher Holmgard, who you may know from Johann Sebastian Joust. Woo! <laughs> So this has been a popular game that you actually may have seen at PAX, 
and it features, well, I'll let you talk about it. Right. Um, yeah, so Johann Sebastian Joust, uh, a game that, that I had a chance to follow closely over the years, designed by Douglas Wilson uh, and Nils Dinekin of Die Gute Fabrik. Um, the point of the game is really to jostle the controller of your opponent while you're sort of keeping to the tempo of the music. And that sort of becomes a... It's a combined spectacle that's a mix of sort of like fencing and dancing and the game of tag, basically. Um, and, yeah, um, originally grew out of uh, sort of an interest in move control, movement control in the, uh, in the Copenhagen game scene. Uh, eventually, you know, uh, Joust made it, made it round, made, made the rounds to events just like this and uh, sort of found a place in the community and eventually came out to the market as part of um, sort of a local co-op compilation called Sports Friends uh, that, we, uh, that we successfully kickstarted. Thank you, everyone, who, uh, who contributed to that and came out on, uh, on console, PC and Mac uh, a few years ago. Excellent, thank you. And you are currently on the faculty at Northeastern, is that correct? That's right. I'm uh, also teaching at Northeastern University at the moment. And what department are you in? Uh, art and Design, um, and I run the, uh, the Graduate Game Design and Science program there. Fantastic, thank you. Uh, next down the line is Danny Silvers. Danny, why Hi. don't you introduce yourself? I'm Danny Silvers. I am CEO of Lantana Games. We are a local indie studio that focuses on mentoring the next generation of game developers. Cool. And what's been your experience with multiplayer games? My experience with multiplayer, well, in the early days, our big project, Children of Liberty, actually started as a four-player co-op stealth adventure. Um, and we quickly realized that that was an absolute disaster, uh, that when it came to stealthing around Boston, uh, being, you know, having four players on the same screen at the same time uh, just made for... A game that just was not fun at all. Um, so we quickly scaled that back to a single-player game. Uh, dabbled in a few other um, uh, local multiplayer games since then, and tossed around ideas for some of our other games. That like you know what would uh, co-op or you know couch uh, multiplayer look like? You know, say in uh, our puzzle game Mondrian. Um, but you know, nothing really in the pipeline at the moment. Cool, thank you. And then moving down the line, we have, I'm going to introduce you together, Zachary Johnson and Tommy Sunders, both of Space Mace Games, who d together with a third person on your team developed Joggernauts, which came out just this past fall. Hi. Hi, thanks for having Hello. us. Uh, excuse my voice, because, or both of our <laughs> voices maybe, because we did South by Southwest and then GDC and then Paxi's back to back to back. So, well, you live to tell the tale. Yeah, we're going to do the best to not squeak too much on mic. So, uh, Jargonauts is a cooperative switching game. Um, if you know what an auto runner is, it was inspired by Bitrip Runner, so the kind of platformer where you move at a constant speed and you play as a team of two to four players. Each person plays as a particular color alien and you have two buttons. You have a jump button and you have a switch to front button that literally moves your color player to the front of this kind of conga line of running astronauts. And your goal is to kind of navigate color-coded puzzles in the level. And it's completely cooperative, so the whole team's either going to survive the levels together or they're going to fail together. Uh, it's, and it's at the festival here. It's in the Indie Mega Booth uh, in the Expo Hall right now. And what were each of your roles on this game? So I'm Zach Johnson, uh, and I did uh, programming and level design. And I'm Tommy Sunders, and I did all the art in the game, and then... Uh, worked on like game design with Zach. Uh, it's kind of a 
we would figure out what we were gonna do and then we'd run off and do our two parts, whether it was visual or code. Fantastic, thank you. So I have a bunch of questions for our panelists today. There will be time for Q&A at the end as well. If you want to tweet a question during the hour, you can use the hashtag PaxCouch, and I'll try to keep an eye on that. So if you want to incorporate your questions during the panel. Uh, but let's start. I actually want to start here with Christopher because your game is the one that doesn't really use screens, so it's unique among us. Sure. And I want to ask you what incentivized you or motivated you to make a game like that that is so hyper-local? Yeah, um, I think so. So obviously it's, it's quite a few years ago since Joust was sort of like designed and developed in the first iteration. And uh, you probably remember, but back around that time, the uh, Nintendo Wii had just came out, come out. And uh, people were sort of like experimenting with the Wii modes and trying to figure out what we could, could do with those, basically. Um, now, all of us at Tigur Fabrique, we were part of a group of game developers called the Copenhagen Game Collective. And we just ended up spending a lot of time figuring out how do you mess around with these Wii modes? What can we actually do? Having a bunch of game, da- game jams, we would go away to sort of summer houses in the countryside to, to see what they could do. And um, just sort of like organically out of that, the, the, the game's design, the, the, the design of Joust grew out of that, basically. Sort of through these like small mini jams experimenting with, with this new technology. And did you feel that making this game would have like limited appeal, that you would only be able to play this at conventions and as opposed to online? Uh, I, I think to be completely honest, that wasn't really a consideration at the time. We didn't really think about reach or where it would go. It was mostly sort of motivated by you know a fascination of these controllers and the kinds of situations you could enable by using them in interesting ways, sort of the way they could bring people together. Nice. Uh, Tanya, so tell us a little bit about Moon Hunter. So you said that this game has both online and offline. Which one came first? Oh, absolutely offline. It was actually initially based on a prototype that my life partner and I made together um, five years before that, so ages ago now. And it was offline only, and it had gotten tons of downloads on uh, TIG source forums, <laughs> and people really enjoyed it. So I thought, well, what if we take that and, and we, we make it prettier with, with, with more high-res pixel art? Um, and, and a new setting and things like that. Um, and then on the Kickstarter, if the Kickstarter goes well, we'll invest in online multiplayer because that's a huge, huge step for a small team. We were only four people. We did not have a network programmer. and we th- But we thought, well, we, if the Kickstarter does well, we'll invest in that and, and we'll grow the game to be bigger. And then the Kickstarter did really well. So then we had to and we sort of pulled it off. It still has some issues, but we're still proud of it. <laughs> Now, you, you said you didn't have a network engineer. For those who aren't devs in the audience, is it roughly the same code for online and offline play? How much more complicated is it? Oh, it's like coding the whole game again. It's a lot. Um, for those of us who start offline and then try to move off online, it is a huge headache. Um, especially, I mean, we tried as much as we could to be conscientious about it. We tried along the way to make sure that we were thinking of online when we designed abilities and, and we made the, the different code decisions for, for different um, screens. But at the end of the day, we, we had to recode large sections of it and um, our programmers were, were less than happy. <laughs> so did you have to actually go back and like undo things? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Whole menus needed to be restructured. Oh, 
So it's ideal to have that in mind in the first place, if possible. Absolutely. I, I have never tried the other way, but I imagine it's easier. Just because when you can, as much as we're, I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about the limitations of having one screen, in some ways that also makes some things easier because you don't have to worry about the four screens getting out of sync with each other. And especially like you have a dialogue menu. We had a, a, a common bug was like, let's say you and I are playing together and an NPC talks to us and you have a choice that we have to make together. You might make your choice before I've even loaded the question and then I, I, my, my game doesn't know what to do because you've already answered, but I don't know what your answer is. And so it's, it, that, that's the kind of question that I think if you built it online first and then tried to make it local, it would actually be a lot easier. Okay, good to know. Lesson learned. <laughs> Uh, Danny, you said that you had some trouble with Liberty, uh, yeah. Children of Liberty. Yep. Um, so basically what would happen is it was fine in single player because you could like dodge out of the way of an incoming red coat, hide in the shadows, etc. And even two player was kind of okay. Like you could pretty easily coordinate with one person next to you. Once you got up into the three to four player range, that's when all hell broke loose and nobody could coordinate anything. And, you know, we pretty much had a a strict rule set in there kind of from day one that the moment you like, we're we're not going to have health. There's no health points in the game. It's just you get hit, you're out, you have to go back to the last checkpoint. Okay, well now you've got four players running around on one screen, all kind of luring red coats over to them, and player four gets knocked out, and now everybody else has to go back to a checkpoint. And no matter what, you know, we could not put in enough hiding spaces, you know, without making the entire game cheatable. And you just, like, everybody hide and go through the whole thing like it just it absolutely didn't work so it was either a matter of you know so challenging that you can't get through it or not challenging enough to the point where this isn't even a game so so for this particular game it sounds like you were almost trying to shoehorn in a feature that didn't really fit exactly yeah you know we wanted to kind of bring a whole like team mentality to the kids you're playing as uh and even you know, being very ambitious at the time, modify the story somewhat so there would be more interconnected dialogue between the characters you were playing. It was just, just too much of an undertaking for the game at the time. So again, it, just like with Moon Hunters, it's good to have that in mind before you even start architecting the game. Yeah. Um, but, you know, kind of along the same lines as Tanya said, it's always easier to cut than it is to add. Easy enough, because if you cut enough, there will be nothing left, and then you're done. Yeah, exactly. And you can just be like, all right, well, <laughs> job finished. That was easy. <laughs> so, Now, Joggernauts, obviously, was very much intended to be a multiplayer game. Why did you focus on local? Um, I mean, the game was originally inspired by controlling a single-player game by like passing it back and forth between two people and taking turns. And that was literally an answer to the question of, how could this game be multiplayer? Um, so it was like always intended to be uh, a local multiplayer game from its like inception, and uh, you know there's just a, was a lot going on at the time. This was you know probably four years ago um, when that happened, and you know we were playing at uh, like IGDA events in our town of Minneapolis or um, events at bars and stuff. I mean we were playing sports friends, we were playing Star Wall, we were playing all these uh, like early couch co-op games when that kind of became a resurgence thing, and it seemed like a no-brainer to to follow that idea and see where it would go. 
You you just used the phrase couch co-op. Maybe I should have used that for the name of the panel. Couch play seems to have other potential connotations. Uh, so, but there's a different. There's couch co-op and there's couch competitive. There's well, two different things. Yeah, there's a lot of co-op that's not cooperative. And I want to ask why is couch play better for cooperative or for competitive? Does your game lend itself to one or the other, or does that? environment lend itself better to one or the other i mean um i would say that that's very game specific like it's not mode specific like competitive and cooperative can be done well online offline but a particular game might benefit a lot from being either network or from being local Mm -hmm. i'll say from a from a design standpoint i feel like co-op in a lot of ways has, has fewer role models to follow because competitive Often there's more examples, first of all, that have, have been massively successful. There, there's more um, different genres of competitive uh, multiplayer. And I think whether you're talking about online or offline, uh, co-op has a lot of the similar struggles, but then the added layer of trying to actually make people cooperate because people yeah. naturally compete. Yes. Like if there's yeah. a limited we, resource of any kind, congratulations, you made a competitive yeah. game. We... we... <laughs> struggle with that for quite a while designing our game where we kept whittling off little things that someone could possibly turn into a competition. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think Somebody will always find a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just the other night, my roommates and I were playing Juggernauts, and every now and then, somebody would push the switch to front button just to screw you up. And I'm like, why would you do that? He's like, I don't know. It was fun. I was like, we'll never get to the end of the level this way. He's like, well, good. I didn't want to play anyway. <laughs> So there definitely can be a competitive aspect to so-called co-op. But I think that the local aspect of that, where your friend was able to be himself and explain himself to you as a human, is something that's much harder in online. Like, if you're to do that to a stranger as just, or, or at best, a voice... Uh, I mean, you're just you're being a total asshole. Whereas your friend is like briefly an asshole to you, but at least he's still your friend. Which right? is uh, the exact argument of why we don't have online in our game. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you can't play Juggernauts with strangers over the internet. Like you can play Juggernauts with strangers, but they need to be like standing right next to you so you can like give them the death stare of like seriously. <laughs> I mean, I think I think this is the magic of JS Joust. Actually, is that you can't but be human. You you must play with humans and acknowledge right. their humanity. Mm-hmm. You can't be anonymous. Yeah, I, I, I think that's right and really important. Like, once you have people in the same room, you can put a lot more friction into the game because people sort of, like, work it out, right? There's mm-hmm. such a rich channel of communication there that you can, you can put a lot more sort of, like, adversity. Even if, if you're cooperating, you can still sort of, like, uh, make sure that there are some, some rocks in the path of that or make sure that people have to sort of sort out a lot of things. I think Space Team is a great ex- example mm-hmm. of, of that as well, right? A game that's, that's really fantastic and sort of has people collaborating, but really, you know, you're constantly, like, stepping on, on each other's toes. Yeah, right and, like, so much of our brains are made up of trying to, you know, recognize faces and understand mm-hmm. voices and tonality and, and read body language. And when you strip all that away, I mean, it's no wonder that people act a bit different online. <laughs> I think that's the, the real conundrum with schadenfreude, particularly when it comes to uh, online play. And for anybody in the audience who doesn't know, schadenfreude is the enjoyment you get in the misery of others. Uh, and as a designer, uh, I focus on that a lot, especially when it comes to like making anything <laughs> multiplayer. Like back in college, we made a lot of board games. Uh, and I always made sure that people who played the board games kind of hated each other by the end of <laughs> playing it, because it's funny. Uh, and for who? For everyone, particularly for me, because I'm very sadistic. Uh, but 
you know, when you, when you play online, okay, well, when you play offline, y- yeah, you might win, you laugh at your friend, but then you hold out your hand and you say, actually, good game, and you shake their hand, and then you share a soda, and everything's great. Online, well, the less said, the better when it comes to online, um, but basically, it is... You lose the camaraderie. It's really hard to have social norms. Yeah. Like even if you try to enforce social norms, <laughs> there's just not as many channels. You know. Yeah, it's a completely different level of Schadenfreude online. Like you personally, you know, are feeling very proud of yourself for winning, but the other player like can't really get into that whole joyful aspect of it as well. And you, you lose that personal connection. And despite being connected, uh, you're very disconnected as well. I mean, there are like problems in game design um, that are technical or like game design problems. And then there are problems that are social, human problems. Mm-hmm. And in uh, local multiplayer, we don't have to design those solutions. We don't have to use technology to enforce solutions around those human problems. Whereas online, you either leave them unaddressed and it's a horror show, or, or it feels really artificial because you're using a technology to try and solve a social problem. Whereas if someone's not playing Joust right, they're right there, and you have peers, and you can all talk to that person about like, what's going on? Like, do, you, do you want to play or what? Yeah, I actually started my career. Uh, my, my first full-time design job was at an MMO company. And so it was kind of like the ultimate version of this, right? It was yeah. an age of Conan. Yeah. So it was advertised as being for assholes, basically. <laughs> 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 Go beat up some, some people, okay. Um, and it was interesting to see the, the mix of strategies they had there, the technical and the, the social, where they encouraged the developers to go on the forums and talk to the players and, and really soften that a little bit. But I definitely came away from it um, really much more excited to work on local, co- or local co-op or small group co-op. And so I ended up working a lot on guild features my last couple of years. Because it's sort of a way of ignoring the MMO aspect and really thinking about, like, okay, when it is a group of friends, can I, can I design for them? And so it's kind of not surprising I ended up making local co-op games, I guess, and I'd I'd love to make more. (laughs) But when you're making games for a local audience, are you limiting that audience? Because, as I mentioned, as an adult, I can't just wander from dorm to dorm. I need to coordinate people's schedules and get them into the same room. And I'll tell you, I enjoy Joggernauts a lot more than I enjoy Tetris 99. I've played more Tetris 99 in the last month. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we... Oh, no, go ahead. I was going to say, it's a... It's definitely like a niche thing, but it's something that a lot of people need for that, like in person. Like, hey, I have friends over. What what do we do? Like that happens eventually. <laughs> and maybe I not think, for everyone, but I think you know a lot like board games. It's just one of those things that you kind of just throw out into the wild, and you know you just kind of wait for people to pick it up and play it. Like. You, you know, no, nobody really thinks like, hey, you know, let's get everybody together and play Clue. It's, it's more like, let's, you know, look on the shelf and see what board game we feel like playing. So I think when it comes to local multiplayer, um, it's kind of more like, what have you got in your collection? What looks fun? Uh, or, you know, maybe even going online and saying, hey, what's new? Uh, you know, oh, oh my God, this has two-player co-op. Let's, you know, spend five bucks, 15 bucks, download this and have a grand old time. 
I mean, we weren't even ready to limit our game only to multiplayer. I think it, it looked like your trailer also said that for Joggernauts. You can play it single player as well, you right? You can, yeah. Yeah. And we found, I don't know if you guys have analytics on this, but we found that um, I think it was 80% of people played it single player mm. and almost 100% played it single player first. Like, there was this fear of going and playing it co-op and embarrassing yourself or something like that. And so, and, and of the people, that, the 20% that played it co-op, like 90% of those played it online. So it was really like a, a tiny fraction that played it local co-op, but we really wanted to support that experience because we felt that that small percentage would be our, our highest fans. Like they would be the family that plays it over and over and they would be the couple that just, that's their bonding moment. And we were willing to invest in that small percentage of our fans that hopefully would then be our evangelists. Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, our biggest evangelists and the people who, you know, it's Thanksgiving and they're posting, like, their family and them playing Joggernauts on Twitter. I love they're it. The, they're the players who are playing single player. They're the ones who are like, okay, I'm going to try 100% this game. And then now they, like, think to pull it out and play it when it's Thanksgiving. And they've got a team of people. Hmm. Yeah. Tanya, you mentioned analytics. Does that include the console versions, which are only offline play? Our analytics are very basic, so I, I, I hesitated before saying anything, but um, no, we have no console analytics, basically. Other than the achievements, we can see what achievements people get. Um, even on Steam, we had some pretty, I mean, for an indie, we had pretty extensive analytics for during our beta, when we were looking at balancing certain classes and things like that, but... Um, no, we generally just wanted to know how many people are playing this co-op. We really wanted to know about the multiplayer, um, so we kept that going for a while, but yeah, that was it. Does anybody else have analytics for their games? We, we actually don't have any at all for sports friends, but you know, we know for a fact that at least two people are playing when we're playing <laughs> one of the games. <laughs> yeah, because, but, but yeah, we don't do it at all. We also do kind of the basic stuff that Tanya and Kid Fox do. You know, we keep track of, like, where players kind of are dying in a level or like, you know, it, uh, in some games, you know, we'll keep track of like uh, how long a level is taking to beat on average. And, you know, uh, like in Mondrian specifically, we found the sweet spot is like two to three minutes on a level. And then if a level is taking like six or seven minutes, we're like, okay, well, we got to cut that back a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask about uh, very similar to analytics is matchmaking. Because when you play a game online, they can pair you with other people by skill level. And so you're pretty evenly matched. And offline, you're limited not by skill level, but by geography. And so that can be good and bad. You might have somebody who 100%'s a game and then invite somebody to play. And they already know how to do everything, and the other person does not. And there is a mismatch there. But as Gubatuba on Twitter suggested, it also allows you to bridge age ranges, for example, so parents can play with kids, which might not happen online or might not happen safely. So how do you handle or think about matchmaking for an offline game? I mean, for us, we actually didn't think about it as offline versus online because we, it's, it's a purely co-op, not competitive game. Um, but we did think about how to enable parents and children to play together. That was actually an exact example we had. So we did end up implementing a few extra mechanics to allow more forgiveness. Um, so for example, there's no, there used to be a limit on how many times you could die before your friend couldn't resurrect you anymore, and we just removed that. Like, you can resurrect as many times as you want, which is fine when you have a five-year-old playing with you, you know, saying, oh, okay, put down the controller for 20 minutes while I finish this level, kid. Like, that's not nice. Um, there's a few other things like that that, um, that really helped uh, have an expert player and a new player have fun together, which probably, in turn, was much more well-suited to offline than online. Okay. 
Yeah, I, I also agree. Sort of, you need to have it designed into the rules of the game. But but at that point, sort of, as long as your game supports different skill levels and different ways of playing it, sort of the matchmaking is done by the players themselves, right? And we, we see that a lot when we've brought Joust to, to different places. That sort of like house rules evolve dynamically like mm-hmm. on the spot and people sort of like figure out where they you know where where they are in relation to one another so as you were saying like acknowledging each other's humanity right suddenly it's, it's a social situation and everyone needs to be part of it so your your players do the you know difficulty adjustment for you basically so like no tall people <laughs> tall people need to hold back a little bit you know or, or you can have a tall league yeah you know? yeah because yeah. okay. i've seen johannes Sebastian just being played at pax and i've never actually stepped into that environment because at first I didn't know how it was being played mm-hmm. and I was afraid somebody would just shove a controller at me and yeah. then everybody would be pushing me around I was like I have no idea what's happening help <laughs> so th- there may be a little bit of a, a barrier there where you in, you know in that case you can't play that game by yourself so you can't 100% it get familiar with the terrain and then invite somebody to join you no, I think that's a good point. It can be a little intimidating if everyone else has been playing it quite a bit, right? And they, they seem really good. But, but you know, on, on the other hand, I think people are usually pretty good at making space for, mm-hmm. for new players. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's also a lot you can do mechanically to help kind of level the playing field in terms of uh, local. And, like, you know, maybe one player is, like, really, really skilled at the game. For instance, I went to high school with Korean DJ, uh, who was a national... I, maybe even international um, Smash Brothers Melee champion. And he, I remember this one time, he literally had one hand behind his back, the wave bird in this hand, and he beat three of us. Literally single-handedly. And at that point I was like, I'm done, I'm never playing Smash again. Um, but mechanically, you can introduce concepts like handicaps, you know, maybe give a player more health or more attack power or, or more whatever, depending on, you know, whatever game you're making, uh, in order to balance that kind of situation out and be like, okay, I'm a noob and you're an international Smash champion. Uh, can we please give you one HP? <laughs> You'd probably still win. So. Joggernauts was kind of designed in reaction to that scenario of like so like you have a friend over and you're like here's Smash Brothers or Mortal Kombat or something that's like super competitive like that me as the owner of the game is probably very good at that you as person just coming to my house probably have never even played it before so now you have a scenario where I'm destroying you and then we, I don't feel good because it's not even fun in the ER and then you're having an awful time because you're just getting your ass kicked. So, like, what's the... So, Joggernauts was kind of a reaction to that of, like, what if we just make them work together? So, even if you're amazing, now you're helping the person next to you and telling them what they're doing wrong and teaching them along the way as opposed to, like, you know, oh, you're out and you're just sitting there while I finish. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's another important thing is that our teams are always together. Like, you can't have a person be out. Right. There's never that moment where... The person who maybe isn't that good sets down the controller and they're like, oh, well, you guys just finished this level and then I'm going to walk away and then the party starts to fall apart. Been there. Yeah, if anything, you want the opposite. You want to incentivize the person who's not so good to play more and like tell the expert person to like take yeah. a seat. We also have um, modifiers in the game, which were actually pretty easy to implement and like we get a really good reaction about them where you can change the speed, you can add more health. Um, like we shipped a really hard game, and we know it is, 
but we also were like if if it takes us a half a day to make it like easy for people who don't want to play a game that hard or you're playing with kids which we weren't thinking about kids necessarily at the time but now that we have it and we're starting to like show it at places where there's like families we're realizing that it's actually amazing for children like i played with like a we were just at south by and i i beat almost every level in our demo with like a four or five year old girl um i'm very good at the game i had to keep reminding her what one of the two buttons did so but we we made it through because we just turned the hearts all the way up so like we kept dying and dying but it was fine because i kept us alive Mm. and she was having a blast the whole time yeah And and in addition to adjusting the difficulty that can also adjust the fun it makes it more accessible and sometimes harder is funner i was playing joggernauts we finished one level i was like okay instead of going to the next level let's do that level again one and a half times the speed and we played it through. And we're like, okay, now let's do it at twice the speed. And the faster it got, the funnier it got. Because we just, <laughs> we, we were yelling at each other that much faster, too. And the, and the, the room just, it was ridiculous. Great game. And uh, speaking of uh, Knots games, there's two other interesting examples. Um, when talking about uh, matchmaking, particularly online, uh, the programmer for Awesome Knots, Juiced, um, he has a whole blog post about all the individual stats that they track to make sure that you get into the best possible matchup when you play online. The sad part is that that game now has a relatively small community, um, which means, I think he said, like, unless you have about 10,000 people playing online, you're never going to get a good matchup with equally skilled players. And I think there's only maybe one or 2,000 playing the game now at most. Uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, you have Bomber Knots, a game that came out a few years ago. And the, um, it, was, it was kind of like um, multiplayer uh, Bomberman. Uh, but when you died, you would actually end up like on a ring up above the level. Oh, and yeah. you could throw bombs down just straight onto the game field to try to knock out other players. And I think if you did that, you could get back into the game. So there was almost two meta levels of the game right there uh, to keep you playing and get you back into the action. Uh, I I remember that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Did you know that there was other games that ended in knots? (laughs) (laughs) No, I've never heard of it. So we, we started the game like four years ago, and that, that was kind of a thing, but there wasn't nearly as many as there are now. <laughs> Knots are huge. <laughs> yeah, I, I first played your game at Indicate East like three years ago, yep. and it was amazing back then. So I mean, it's the, the concept is extremely simple. So it was just you know refining all the systems around this really simple concept to weed out problems with, you know, like we were talking about earlier with like competition popping up in a, co- in a cooperative game. And then it was just, you know, content, you know, a lot of content work. But the core concept's been there for a very long time, yeah. yeah. So we talked about the limitation on resources for players you can draw from to, to have these multiplayer experiences with. Other resources are also limited, including the screen, unless you're playing Johann Sebastian Joust. But I remember, you know, playing GoldenEye, all of a sudden, your screen goes from the full screen to a quarter of it. That's still true for local Mario Kart. And maybe if you thought looking at your opponent's screen, GoldenEye was cheating, then you had this elaborate scheme where one of you's hiding under a blanket looking at just half of the screen. Oh, come on, you know you did it. Cardboard box. That's right, cardboard box. There you go, just like Solid Snake. Love it. 
<laughs> so how do you cope with the limited techno technological resources when creating these local games where everybody has to share the same screen? Well, sometimes that's a problem, sometimes it's not. I mean, you look at like any fighting game, for instance, like Street Fighter, you don't have to split the screen there. Um, you get two, you know, sometimes even more characters on one screen, no problem. Um, so that's, you know, that, that all comes down to game design. If you do have to split the screen up, um, then there's a lot of technical limitations that come in mind. Like the moment you split the screen, now you have to render the scene twice. Uh, so that eats up your system resources. So you have to think about, okay, well, what can we do? Well, we can drop texture quality. We can drop screen resolution. We can drop frame rate. Um, you know, you, you have to find corners to cut in order to make that work. So my personal favorite form of local multiplayer is non-split screen. Just, you know, if you can get away with it, um, keep everybody on the same screen at once. For instance, there is a game being shown by some students here at Northeastern. Uh, it is called Fruit Postal Service. Uh, I highly recommend you go check it out. It's like top-down um, driving competitive, like totally, totally fun. And the game runs super smooth and looks great. Go check that one out. Um, you know, versus um, there's a, another game here, uh, Dogfight, which is a split screen multiplayer ace combat kind of thing where you play as dogs uh, shooting each other out of the sky. Petrichor, go check them out. Um, <laughs> You know, I haven't talked to them specifically about what sacrifices they're making uh, in you know, each corner of the screen, um, but I'm assuming there's got to be some. I mean, both Joggernauts and Moon Hunters I, I've found a way to keep it all on one screen, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and we did get a little bit of pushback on that. Um, I mean, sometimes people, you know, they want to explore different parts of the the map from each other or something because um, ours is like a normal RPG but we decided because we you know people are familiar with Secret of Mana they, they could deal with it and we would we try to make the, the level design sort of flow in a way that didn't encourage splitting up but it did involve redesigning the towns a little bit because the towns used to sprawl a lot more Mm. And it ended up with a lot more frustration of the, the, the group feeling like this hydra that wanted to go in a million different directions. And so we ended up shoving all of them into like this main road. Like they all have a one strip town. <laughs> um, and that ended up being a lot more comfortable. There is a lot you can do uh, in that design space too, though. Like if the players do want to split up, like maybe you limit it, but you can still pull the camera out yeah. and show more of the, the game space. But my beautiful pixels, though. <laughs> different well, they, size. It's just the pixels get a little bit smaller. But I, I love the, the dynamic uh, splitting that they do sometimes in like Lego games and things yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely, lovely. So how does Moon Hunter handle? Does the camera pull back? No, no, no. no. You're just stuck. Like, you guys had better be on the same screen at all times because you're a team. Yeah. So yep. you're forcing them to be a team. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Very Whether good. you like it or not. <laughs> <laughs> are there other resources I haven't thought about besides just the visual that are limited? Uh, I, I do know uh, if you ever played Mario Kart 64, if you played with four people, only two people got sound. And, and two people what? Two people. Only two of the, the like first and second player got sound, and the other really? two didn't oh. make any sound. Wow. I never oh, noticed I that. I noticed that. <laughs> I believe that makes it. sense. Well, hopefully that doesn't happen anymore. Like, I, well, I imagine the sound card on a N sixty four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> just probably. Yeah. Wow, I, n I never even noticed that. Did, did other, were people aware of that limitation? No. 
Yeah, me neither. Time to do some research. Mm. Yeah, this might be one of those urban myths. <laughs> I don't know about this. I, I mean, it does on my cartridge. I mean, it's just mine. <laughs> you, you, you have to blow it. You to, <laughs> right. There you go. Right. So. You get some dust in the way. <laughs> so there are all these uh, challenges, limitations, opportunities. What about emotions? Are there certain feelings that you are trying to engender by putting people in the same room together, whether it's you know love, hate, jealousy, whatever. Um, we're, I mean, we're trying to get people to divorce, move out. Um, <laughs> That's not. <laughs> well, well, I am. I mean, New Super Mario Brothers U was basically like divorce material. Like, why did you throw me into the pit? Because I was trying to jump off your head to get up there. One of us had to. And like, that's not what a couple does. A couple sticks together. And this, this can be very demanding, and it can be not fun sometimes. There's this concept of, um, I don't know if it's like a real thing or if it's, it's just like a, a catchphrase, but like trauma bonding, you know? <laughs> like, you go, like, like the reason why you make such good friends with people in college is because you're both going through like this awful experience together, right? <laughs> and so like the social part's great because you're suffering in the classroom and homework and tests and stuff. And so like if you suffer a little bit in a, in a co-op game, like, it's a way to actually get closer to people. Yeah, we made an indie game together, and now we're friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with schadenfreude, obviously. Um, I, I, I just really like the whole sort of high-energy, fun-fight uh, kind of mentality that you can get. Uh, you look at a game like Nidhogg, uh, and it, it's always just a matter of like, oh my god, I didn't even do anything and you stabbed me. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I just I think you you want to make sure that people's social connection is a little bit different when they come out of that that, that game session, right? That's like either in the positive and the negative, having you know overcome, uh, have, having fought together, you know, having worked together. Just make sure that you know something's changed when we're exiting out of that play session. Yeah, I mean, I think all games really are about this emotional moment that you have with the game, whether it's you know the satisfaction of mastery or. Uh, you know, novelty, like the wonder of exploring a new world or whatever. Um, I think what's wonderful about co-op um, in particular, or and competitive actually, is that you share that moment with another person. And I think that that makes it, and especially if you're physically in the same space together, it makes it much more memorable because that, that emotion, you can actually see it in the other person and experience it together, and that, be, that makes it more meaningful, at least to me. Did and the so, three of you have the experience as kids of playing with a best friend or like a sibling where it was a single player game but you still sat in front of the TV together and had those experiences together always yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah even though my little brother was eight years younger uh, we co-opted uh, Final Fantasies yeah. uh, where he he was like can I grind for you and I was like yes <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I actually, I, I have revisited that model with my partner. So mm-hmm. we play tons of single-player games together, uh, co-op. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wish there were more couch co-op games for us to play together, actually. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my family and I would always play adventure games together. So Full Throttle, The Dig, um, Longest Journey, uh, Siberia. Um, yeah, just a whole bunch of, like... Everything from the old LucasArts games to like clones of the old LucasArts games. You know, games. I think puzzle games and adventure games are perfect for it because are, some, yeah. one person gets stuck, but the other person sees something yeah. the first person's like too excited to see. Which is why I found like Portal 2's multiplayer mm. much better 
offline than online mm. because offline you can be like okay no you can actually point to like what you're supposed to be doing and help the other person out online they're like okay can you like look to the left a little bit <laughs> okay what am i looking at i don't know there's got to be something yeah i think I, I used to call up doom actually when i was growing up so you know I, w- I would with my best friend so i would i would steer and she would shoot or we would take turns and it was perfect for that you know so one of you mentioned you know watching each other play games whether it's a sibling or whatever and that observational experience is very different with offline games. With online games and esports, you can stream it, you can you know, put it on Twitch, millions of people can tune in. With offline play, you can still have observers and you can experience their reactions where you don't necessarily get them on Twitch. So what is your experience with observers to your games? I mean, our game turns into a lot of screaming. If, you have a, <laughs> if, if you're doing like a three or four person game, there's... Like an energy to like something happening, that everyone like is like screaming and cheering and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the observers in the room, assuming they understand what's happening in the game, will a lot of times get really invested in it too. So like, we, especially at like cons like this, if you get a big group of friends, like our booth turns into like a madhouse until they leave because <laughs> like everyone's like watching and cheering. And yeah, everyone wants to see them pull it off. You know, they they see them getting so close. It's like okay, this time they're gonna do it. No, okay. This time they're going to do it. <laughs> and especially with Johan Sebastian Joust, I more often see people watching than I do playing. The crowd outside is usually bigger than the crowd inside. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, feel, I think the spectacle is sort of like half of that game, really. And, and the way that people start performing for one another, and you, you can see that people are loving it. Like, they're pretending to be Baroque dancers, right? And people are sort of <laughs> responding to that. It's, that, that. That's a huge part of the joy of that game as well, I think. And that starts, as you suggested, imp- influencing the players, because they're now performing for the crowd. It becomes part of your style, and I think if, um, if you perform, if you dance really well but still lose, that's, that's probably better than winning. <laughs> <if you're> just... <laughs> I want to ask how many of you grew up playing arcade games, like coin-op arcade games where you're standing next to each other playing and sometimes having a crowd. X-Men. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's good four-player arcade game. Six-player. Six-player. Sorry. Yeah. That's, that's a rarity right there. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Uh, but more two-player and single-player, not a lot. I mean, there was maybe some Gauntlet or some, like, Simpsons, but well, most of our arcade experience was single-player or two-player. Hmm. I wasn't really allowed to go to the arcade. <laughs> um, it had been busted for meth a few times. Oh. <laughs> but I still got to play a little X-Men if I it, snuck in. It happens. <laughs> and did that experience that growing up in arcades at all influence your aspirations as a game designer now, especially when it comes to offline play? Probably, honestly. Um, I mean, some of my best memories from being a kid are going to the arcade just to play X-Men with my friends and family. So I probably, I mean, I can't list anything specifically off the top of my head, but I will say when that came out on Xbox Live Arcade back in the day, I immediately jumped on board. But, you know, playing like two or even three player on a couch as opposed to at the cabinet, kind of doesn't compare. There's something really exhilarating about putting in a quarter, and, you know, yeah. it, it kind of feels more like being in a live show than, mm-hmm. you know, being at home and playing a game. Mm. Was anybody else here oh, conscious of that potential parallel? Uh, I love the question, Ken, because, I mean, I think there's got to be something to it, because you see that uh, arcades coming back, co-ops come back, and then a lot of the like local multiplayer games are like that single screen old school 
like fixed camera, one room, everybody in a room, arcade style. So, I mean, there does seem to be like something going on with, I don't know what it is, but it seems like there's like an important connection there. And then escape rooms kind of do the same thing too, where like you have, you know, a group of strangers coming together trying to solve puzzles in real life as opposed to in front of a screen. So it's almost more like JS Joust, but um, yeah. It's, but the um, idea of, a, of there being a destination where you can yeah. go and yeah. play games that don't exist anywhere else, like yeah. that was also mm-hmm. kind of magical. Yeah, I mean, even recent arcade games like Pac-Man Battle Royale, Killer B, yeah. and I saw on the show floor Pit People mm. is being it's built in a coin-op cabinet, mm. and uh, Killer B I'm sure is coming. I think it's coming to the Switch, but it's going to be a very different experience. Are you talking about Killer Queen? Sorry, Killer Queen. Killer Queen. Okay. Thank you. Yes, I have actually played it at Up Down Arcade in Kansas City, Missouri, mm. but nowhere else. <laughs> we have one in Minneapolis. I think we yeah. have two, don't we? Up Down. Well, or cabinets. cabinets. Yeah, we have Up Down in Minneapolis also. But yeah, we have a few Killer Queen cabinets. They like really build a community around them. It's kind of wild. Yeah, I mean, how many players is that game? Like 14 or something? I think it's 10 at a time. 10? Oh, yeah, yeah, like five on each screen. Yeah. Although I think arcades sort of skirt the line between the, the benefits of offline and the, the difficulties of online in that you do end up with these spaces where... You know, you, you have to be a stranger going in and, and dealing with um, maybe social norms that aren't your own. Uh, maybe there's, like, a group of friends and you're like, hey, can I join you, even though maybe I'm super different? And I don't know, like, you know, if you see, a, at least as a young girl going up and, and being like, hey, a bunch of 18-year-old boys, I'm going to join your game. <laughs> Not always super comfortable. And it's slightly more comfortable online in some ways because I can hide who I am and hide my identity. But, I mean, a lot of other people have, have more to their identity that they need to hide in order to play comfortably with other people, especially with strangers. Yeah. So it, it is interesting to see like how it's sort of a gradient of, of how much uh, you have to sacrifice your, your own comfort to, to sort of blend in. Hmm. Yeah. So, so we have about 10 minutes left. I'd like to use that time for Q&A. Instead of having people line up, as you may be accustomed to, I'm going to be walking around with a microphone and handing it or holding it in front of people who raise their hands. So if you have a question, feel free to put up your hand, and I'll come to you. Who has a question? Wow. This is like a luxury. Okay, let's, let's start Service. in the back here. Hello. Um, I found a particular niche for combination couch co-op and online play, particularly when a friend who used to live in the area moves away, and then you can have kind of a group on a couch together, and uh, someone who's completely separate uh, mm. that can play. Very few games that I've found that actually offer that, Diablo 3 being a notable example. Um, are there specific challenges with doing both couch play and online play simultaneously? Um, and if you don't have experience with that, then can you imagine some? Oh, absolutely. We definitely looked at that for Moon Hunters, and it was a nightmare. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, because what ended up happening, like, like I mentioned before with the, uh, the multi-screen dialogue problem, um, actually having a dynamic number of screens to track uh, was really difficult for us. And maybe if we thought of it from the beginning, it would have been fine. But as it was, we ended up with either the single screen situation or the multi-screen. And then when some people are sharing a screen and other people aren't and, and, and trying to, to discover the logistics of that dynamically, it was, it was, uh, it was way too big for us to handle, for sure. Uh, I actually have a question for Space Ace. Uh, similarly, 
Have you considered letting four wireless players on Switch play? Not online, not on the internet, but like sitting on the same couch, each with their own screen. That would be nice. Yeah, I mean, we, we totally thought about doing that. I mean, it, it was a, a feature in like our original design document that got cut for scope, really. Um, but I think it'd be cool to see people be able to do that. Um, I think it'd be a, a bigger thing uh, if we did, you know, like team v. team then like we'd get into split screen real estate problems so being able to do that on multiple switches would be a good solution cool that actually was a question from twitter so thank you to whoever passed that out uh here take one of these cards just one and that has a steam code on it congratulations you just won a game let's go uh, right here um i remember when i was in, in college everyone had these laptops that have webcams in them and sometimes we would set up like a google hangout so we can see each other while we play and it got us a lot of that feeling of couch playing but online mm. is is that possible to do on on like a modern setups i i would assume so because i'm yet to see a laptop released in current year that doesn't have a webcam included with it um, and then there's plenty of like even open source libraries that if you wanted to put uh, you know webcam video conferencing into your game, other than the cost associated with it, there's not a whole lot yeah. stopping developers from doing that. I could specifically confirm that because our game is local only, um, and on launch day, people were streaming it with each other on Twitch with a third-party free thing called Parsec, and so four streamers on Twitch. We're all like virtually in the same room together. You could see a video feed of all their faces. They could all see each other. And they were all playing networked juggernauts with a third-party thing, and it worked. And we were like, what? (laughs) I I think that's an interesting question. Do you you think it's worth building it into your game either, even? Or do you think people... Well, now I'm just telling people to use Parsec. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Just like put a link on your website. Like, you want that? Go here. Yes. That's, I mean, uh, a lot of local multi... Like games are starting to put that they're catching on. They're like putting the, like an update in their Steam, being like, "Hey, did you know this is out there? Go use that that feature that you always wanted us to do. Someone else did." <laughs> yeah, like I'm I'm pretty sure you could like even integrate OBS into your game with like the Twitch, and then also include like the Twitch API, so you can just start streaming mm-hmm. directly from your game and access the webcam and, and everything. Yeah, I think you could. Yeah, it's been really great seeing Discord as well kind of grow as this tool for people mm-hmm. to start out as strangers and become friends or, or as friends have this easy way to connect with each other and, and, and mm-hmm. game together. It's great. Good time. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Here, have a card. And one more question right here. Um, so I'm a game dev student, and I'm in a group where we're making a couch multiplayer collectathon game. Nice. Um, yeah, and as the game is right now, you don't technically have to compete with each other, but it's obviously much more fun if you do. Um, I'm wondering what um, features or aspects you've either seen or made in games that encourage the most amount of competition possible. Whatever creates risk is what I would say. So, you know, for instance, you could do something as simple as if I'm not collecting, I'm losing health. And then that, you know, at any way that you can encourage the player to do what the game wants you to do, um, not necessarily, like, punish them too much, but at the same time, you want to, you kind of want to nudge them 
in the right direction. Yeah, you want to incentivize them to strive and, and, and work for something. So identify all of the resources, whether it's movement, time, stuff, you know, mm-hmm. various. All of those resources could be incentives to compete with each other, like if, yeah. if you increase the scarcity. Yeah, there's also the... I, I don't know if it has a specific name, but I call it the, um, the wow resting effect, where originally, like, they would... Um, punish players by making them collect only half the experience if their character wasn't rested after a certain amount of time. And the feedback was that that system sucked. Basically, all they did was they reworded it uh, to say, you get twice the XP if you are rested, (laughs) and then just normal XP when you aren't. Um, And that went over a whole lot better. So it can even come down to something as simple as wording in the instructions. Where are you a student? Um, I'm a student at, um, in New Hampshire at uh, NHTI. Nice. Great. Thank you. Sure. Oh, and for you. And with our last five minutes, I want to give our delightful panelists the opportunity to offer any closing remarks about this wonderful offline experience starting down here with Space Mace Game. Starting with me? Yeah. Uh, me. Lo- local good, <laughs> but, uh, local good, but also not good. <laughs> well, l- let me rephrase the question. What do you think is the future of couch play? Like, is it going um, to get harder to make? Is it going to be more popular? Are we going into an increasingly networked world where there's no place for it? I think uh, the Switch is a great tool for just like popping up and playing a thing with somebody, and you have a little controller with it. If your game is designed to work with two Joy-Con, um, that's a really exciting thing. That's part of like, I mean, that's why that was the, our main focus was Switch because it was like you already have you can already play a two-player game without asking anyone to buy anything, mm-hmm. which is really powerful. Like, I don't know the exact numbers on it, but like the number of people who own more than one PlayStation controller is like minuscule if you look at right. like the big picture. So, right. um, I think Switch is helping a lot in that respect. Didn't you start making your game before the Switch existed? Yes. yes. Yeah. We, um, we had people screaming the word Switch at each other, and then Nintendo announced their console, and we looked at each other like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> We're like, huh, a match made in heaven. This is cool. With red um, and blue controllers? Yeah, and, yeah. wow. That, that was a good day for us. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun day. <laughs> that is like lightning striking twice in the same exact spot. That's awesome. I would, so my one like, co- like follow-up comment, I guess, would be anyone who's interested in making their own local co-op games, um, you need people frequently to playtest that, right? Like you need to like iterate on your game, which means you need a lot of human beings around. I would suggest... Um, you know, starting uh, an event, start a start a bar event, start a coffee shop event, start a Friday night game event or whatever, where anyone who's working on games can show their prototypes and you can kind of work together. I mean, that's what we did. We kind of built a community around local multiplayer in Minneapolis so that we'd have a built-in community to test Joggernauts because it's such a problem. Cool, Danny. Um, well, I absolutely agree. Local good. Um, I think that. <laughs> You know, and yes, obviously the Switch is amazing in terms of uh, local multiplayer possibilities. I think it could start getting a little bit weird when it comes to VR. Um, you know, we didn't touch on it much, uh, if at all, this panel. We might not have touched on it at all. Um, 
but you know, two people technically in the same room, but each wearing gigantic goggles on their heads and going into a completely different universe together, like it's gonna create an entirely new dynamic that I I don't think we even know what to expect from that. So yet. we actually uh, for Global Game Jam, like when like I think it was still on the DK two or something, we did a game that was uh, one person in VR versus people on a screen in right. 2D. Something, that was something really, along the lines of uh, keep talking and nobody explodes. Woo! Yeah. Woo! But yeah, having that uh, like local multi where like, it's like you can never expect someone to have like two vibes in their house. Right, yeah. <laughs> so, we're not, <laughs> so we're just about out of time, but Christopher? Yeah, sure. I, I think uh, just like you're touching upon, sort of like asymmetric uh, experiences where maybe you only have one sort of, there's some fancy gadget, right? Uh, I, I'm looking forward to people seeing how, how, how do you deal with a situation where only one person has the headset or you, know, mm-hmm. you only have one switch or sort of, sort of like um, enabling people to, to, to play together around those in asymmetric ways? Um, I also think I just want to say, I think almost all games are potentially couch games if you, if you do them right, right? Yeah. Even, even single-player games. And, and I think that's just um, something we'll see more and more. And, and streaming also sort of like... Uh, you know, no points to that, but people just love having these experiences together. And I think we should think about that, sort of as we were talking about earlier, so having the spectacle and observing play is just as legitimate a way of participating and being part of these like shared experiences. Um, so I, I hope we'll see much more of that as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really hoping that PC desktop somehow transitions to the couch. Like that is definitely a sticking point where I feel as a local co-op designer, I'm stuck like depending on the consoles. Um, where I'd like to design more PC games. Um, but I am also on board with single-player co-op. I'm really hoping that a lot of couples play Boyfriend Dungeon together <laughs> because, like, maybe one person is, like, more into the dungeons and one person is, like, more into, like, kissing the swords. And then that's just, like, a great couples night, like, date night. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you want to try it, there's a booth uh, in the middle of the show floor, uh, Kit Fox Games. You should, you should try it. Thank you. And to wrap up very quickly, go down the line, say your name and where to find you online, starting at the end again. So I'm Tommy Saunders. Um, I'm Super Tommy 64 on most platforms. And if you can't find it there, then I'm not there. <laughs> I'm uh, Zach Johnson. I'm uh, Zachary Johnson on Twitter and uh, spacemacegames.com or at spacemacegames on social media. Um, Danny Silver's Lantana Games. Just go to lantanagames.com and you'll find everything. Um, Christopher Holmgard. I'm usually Holmgard, H-O-L-M-G-A-R-D online, or follow at Gudefabrik, uh, which is much more active on Twitter than I am. I'm Tanya X. Short, the captain of Kit Fox Games. So if you just look for Kit Fox Games, you'll find me most of the time. And I'm Ken Gagney. I'm the host of the podcast Polygamer, co-host of the Star Trek podcast Transporter Lock, and you can find me on Twitter at GameBits. And thank you all so much for coming. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Indie Cider, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at IndieCider.net. 